0: Hello, and welcome to my favorite murder. 2023. That's right. That's Georgia Hardstark. Thanks, that's Karen Kilgariff. And we're here to podcast in a brand new year, a fresh year.
1: It's already like the 12th for everyone listening. And the right. 19th. <laughs>
0: still, still, first month,
1: right? <laughs> it is the first month. This is our first recording back from the winter break because we pre-recorded some stuff because we wanted to keep putting out content as you do. So this is technically our first recording back.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was, we had to take a Christmas break, right? Because mm-hmm. this is America. So we did some pre record so you weren't completely alone and abandoned um, yeah. in that time. So now we're all lightly off schedule. That's right. But I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be, you know, at least slightly current.
1: Me too. I am too. But you know what I think I realized while I had all that time to think during our break is that I don't think my brain ever got the memo that quarantine is over. I think that's what's going on with me. Yeah, I relate completely. Yep. Like, I think I'm still stuck in that, but we have to stay home. No one ever told me. And it's not over. Fucking COVID's still happening. Yep. But it's different. Yes. Like, hard quarantine is still way of the world to me.
0: Can I make a suggestion that is absolutely projection on my part, but is meant to uh, make you feel better? Yep. Part of us loved quarantine. Part of us was like, oh, holy shit. This is like forced downtime. Yeah. And forced hermiting. Yeah, forced
1: agoraphobia in a lot of ways.
0: All the things, it was almost just a different name for a thing that's normally defined in a negative that (laughs) suddenly was like, hey, the government's making me do it, man.
1: Hey, you know all those symptoms of depression that you are normally used to with depression? It's actually government mandated now, depression.
0: Yeah, it's my state representative's fault that I have depression. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're giving it to me.
1: The world has depression with me, finally. Yes. Finally. Finally.
0: Yes, the world has depression. The world's overeating carbs. The world mm-hmm. is making baked goods for no reason. Like, I'm not alone anymore. <laughs> There's a mac and cheese run. Ah, I
1: don't think I want to let that go yet. So I think it's now turned into real depression <laughs>
0: instead of government-mandated depression.
1: Yes. I got to claw my way out of that somehow. I think realization is the first step, probably.
0: Yep, and talking about it, not keeping it like a secret. Yeah. It's never a dirty secret, and I think maybe that's a good way to think about it or frame it, is like, if that's how you feel, that's how a bunch of people feel. Because we all had the same... Yeah. I don't want to say traumatic experience, because now we're using that word so much in this culture, but we all had a very bizarre, brand new experience together.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. And since we don't have an office to work from, it's not like there's a normalcy of going back to the office, you know, or anything like that.
0: Right. The idea of seeing people on your computer and yeah. forcing connection where it doesn't exist because yeah. we're at our houses, we've gotten so used to it that we don't question it anymore. Like the idea of podcasting in real life and being able to like get that actual in the room sense of like what people say and how they mean it and what mm-hmm. is going on. what a dream that'll be when we start yeah. doing that again.
1: The endorphin rush of connection. Oh, I miss that.
0: Yeah, it's important for human beings.
1: Yeah, for sure. I still am doing therapy on Zoom. Me too. And it's not the same at all. I miss I miss person to person.
0: Yeah. It's important. And also just the change of pace of like, that's the way you know quarantine's over when you start doing things you didn't do in quarantine. Right. And I haven't done that yet. Yeah. Like leaving the house. I went to a concert and the whole time, all I could think about was, why don't I have a mask on? This room is too small. Yeah. Da, da, da. I was positive I was going to get it. And I didn't, which is a, yeah. an important kind of like watermark of like, I don't know, but that's going to happen to everybody as we go. This is yeah. just kind of the new way.
1: Yeah. Or you're going to get it. And it's going to be okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about, we had a a nationwide shared experience, or at least people that follow true crime, because they arrested the suspect for the crimes of the four murders of the students in Moscow, Idaho, which I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't believe they did it that quickly. So fast. Like, compared to most of the stories we talk about or follow, so yeah. incredibly fast. Yeah. So well handled. And then they had a press conference that my I actually my dad watched with me. I kind huh. of was like, dad, I want to watch this. And I was figuring I would go up into a different room and watch it on my laptop. And he's like, no, we'll put it on right here. He's like, I love the news. He really loves news in any form. (laughs) And to watch that police chief, that district attorney, like, first of all, the police chief started by saying, it doesn't matter what we say today because there is no good news when these four families have lost their children in this horrible way. And I was like, oh my God, it is a new day yeah. in the way people handle crime in cases like this. Mm-hmm. I was so blown away that he made that acknowledgement. And that then after that, when the DA spoke, and he, I'm sorry to say, did look a little bit like Santa Claus. So it was a little bit kind of like- <laughs> It was like around Christmas. Oh yeah, every, yeah, they're taking care of things. And the DA said, this is not the end of this. This is the beginning. So mm-hmm. please be- just as patient as you were before because we won't be able to tell you anything for a long time. It was suddenly right. like they got into this position of almost like teaching people how to be in this in this with them and how to right. follow this correctly. Right. Which I thought was so
1: smart. Instead of wild speculation, which is what happens online of like, it's some teacher that did it. It's some oh. neighbor. It's this person. It's, and here's the evidence. And then they just drag people. It's you crazy. Know, dox people. It's crazy.
0: Well, and the thing that's now happening with, with stuff like that, when people really don't use their heads about speculation and accusation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is now the people that are speculating are getting sued. Ah. That is not Fun. It is not good. They're going to lose a lot of money. They're going to be truly impacted. So, if you are some sort of an influencer and you think you're going to suddenly be like, oh, I know who did it, that is it. Don't do that. There's no upside to that. It's bad. It is. So that getting handled in a way where it's like, you're not suddenly going to learn everything about this case. Mm-hmm. We're, you're only going to learn it as the court wants you to learn it, is right. how they explained it, which was very cool. So yeah, I was just like kind of blown away by the efficiency with which they actually got something done, which was mm-hmm. so impressive. And then the real kindness, I think, that they approached, it didn't have that normal old feeling. It was really... Yeah. Interesting.
1: The whole case is just it's so shocking. And then I, I saw the photo of the of the house where they lived. You know, in my mind it was like an apartment or a dorm situation, that it was a standalone house living with what was it, five, six roommates, which yeah. totally I did that at that age. Yep. You know, yeah. and then they finding out they had a dog. It's just like, oh my God, these poor people, they're poor families. Yeah what a shock and it's so horrible and yeah i hope i hope this goes as smoothly as it's gone so far for them
0: yeah i was in a couple threads watching what people were saying and there yeah. were a couple people and this is going to happen like you can't get upset really about anything that happens on social media because people yeah. are there to kind of make a weird stance and get clout. That's just what people do on social media. But there were some people who were trying to say things about what the roommates did or didn't do and when they did it and how that means something. And at first I saw it and I was getting upset because it was just like, these are victims as well. Yeah. These are also children, like this can't be happening. And then God bless them within the next time I check that thread, here come all kinds of true crime expert Follower people who know what they're talking about, and they were like, "How dare you accuse anybody? Or how dare you come in saying you know how this would go? Like with specul, like wild speculation, insane, and kind of really gross, like bottom of the barrel accusation speculation. It's Mm -hmm. not just like, Mm -hmm. oh, I think that's weird behavior. It's like that means this.
1: Right? I did this once, and it never went like that. Yeah. That's that's how I know they're wrong or whatever. Yeah.
0: So it's cool." that there are so many people showing up in that way and really defending the people who deserve to be defended and basically yeah. kind of pushing back against that weird, like, there's some people who just get in there and like, you know, when you follow a thread and they keep showing up to like yeah. argue with people where you're like, what is this? Why would you do this? Yeah, It's just participating like, is this a human being that mattered? Or right. are you just kind of trying to do a a very self-centered thing so that people interact with you, good or bad. Totally. Totally. I'm not judging people. When we started this podcast, I said, shit, I wish I'd never said and feel so stupid for saying.
1: We were finding our way and it just all happened to be recorded.
0: (laughs) We chose to have Steven sit on the floor and record (laughs) it for us. Uh, But that's kind of my point. It feels like the entire genre of how people pay attention to this stuff is changing in Mm -hmm. a very real way. I was really impressed by the people that were showing up and doing it right and helping other people kind of go the right direction. Very cool. For a thing that's shocking, I think that's the thing you start to look for. Because this has all those pieces of like an old-fashioned case you follow. The idea that Mm -hmm. this suspect was studying criminology. Yeah. I mean, that's like, if it was in a movie, you'd go, that's kind of corny.
1: Totally. It is, it's mind-boggling for sure, the whole thing.
0: Yeah. And then on the other side of that, Mm -hmm. you saw Dr. Love got arrested again.
1: (laughs) Tell everyone who Dr. Love is. (laughs) Dr.
0: Love. Dr. Love is a case that I covered A while ago, right? That was pre-COVID, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Definitely, (laughs) I think. When when did it happen? I don't remember. It it was. It must have been. I think it was. But he's a young man who has a lot of hopes and dreams to be, or at least dress like a doctor and Mm -hmm. have a doctor's office and see patients. And he got arrested (laughs) for it. And it's a really kind of mind-boggling story. And got out of jail. And I guess the first job that he had... Relatively soon after he allegedly, because I think he j- only got arrested, began to embezzle. <sighs> it's just the kind of thing where he just keeps getting into trouble, and then immediately, if there's a news story about it, people yeah. will tweet me and go, right. "Look at him, he's doing it again. He's into fraud.
1: He's really, really into fraud.
0: It's yeah. his hobby. It is. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get on the straight and narrow if what you love deep down is fraud? Yeah, that's tough.
1: Yeah, that is a tough one. Like, it can't be a hobby. That's not a hobby. Learning about people who are into fraud is a hobby, being into fraud.
0: He needs to go to Wall Street and start working with the yes. people who love embezzling. Ah. They, they love different ways to steal and, and yes. rip people off.
1: Get in there. They applaud people who are into fraud. That's yeah. like
0: they, they reward them. <laughs> Get it. Not Figure out the way to take <laughs> yeah. a 0.03% out of every check and put it in your personal <laughs> bank account. That is... Yes, that's what is done. Right. Go work for the
1: U.S. government, something you know <laughs> something. They re- where they reward you for being a total fucking psychopath.
0: <laughs> yeah, a lots happened over over yeah. Christmas break, the full yeah. run. Yeah,
1: um, should we tell everyone what's going on with exactly right
0: at the moment? Yeah, might as well get to the real business at hand. Okay.
1: Here's some exactly right highlights. That's our podcasting network, everyone. This week on Parent Footprint, Dr. Dan is joined by science journalist and author of the book, Mother Brain, Chelsea Connaboy. So parents and people who are adjacent to children, please check out Parent Footprint. You'll love it. If you're child
0: adjacent in any way. Yes. And then over on I Said No Gifts would- Bridger Weininger. Wow, this is an amazing booking. Writer-director Paul Feig. You might know him from the show Freaks and Geeks. Many other things. He was the director of Bridesmaids. I think he also directs a couple episodes of Arrested Development. He's Mm -hmm. a legend. He directs movies now. And he's a guest on I Said No Gifts. Go over there and listen to their hilarious conversation. Do
1: it. And if you haven't heard, the MFM store is now home to merch for other Exactly Right podcasts. And since it's still the cozy season, you can go check out some really fun sweatshirts from the podcast Bananas. This podcast will kill you. I saw what you did and more. So go to myfavoritemurder.com and check out the store.
0: That's kind of cool because if you wanted to buy, say, an MFM mug, uh-huh. but then you also love I saw what you did, you know, you can get all your shopping done in one spot.
1: That's Right. We made it easy for you.
0: It's all we want to do for you. Well, shit. Am I first? I think we talked ourselves right up to the beginning of the actual (laughs) podcast. That was fast. Yeah. Wow. All right. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that
1: really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it
0: also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound it madeincookware.com.
1: That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. Okay, well, I'm first. And this is a story, a cold case that had a big update at the end of 2022. I thought I'd give everyone the background and the update. And hopefully in 2023, we'll see some more updates on this historic huge case. So mm. this is the story of the boy in the box. Oh, wow. Yeah. This episode features pretty graphic depictions of child abuse, including some mentions of sexual abuse, which aren't graphic, but they're mentioned, so it's just as a warning to listeners. So um, main sources used in my story today is a New York Times article by David Stout, a Newsweek article by Gerard Kayinga, a Philadelphia Inquirer article by Jason Nark, and a People Magazine article by Nicole Acosta, and the rest you can find in our show notes. So it's February 25th, 1957. So we're going way far back. A teenage boy has set up some illegal muskrat traps in an empty lot lined with bushes in the Fox Chase area of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I think it's, mm. it's in the middle of Philly, but I think it's kind of, you know, some open grassy lot area.
0: Back in the 50s when they had grass in Philadelphia. Exactly
1: hmm He's checking on those illegal muskrat traps when he finds a large cardboard box and he looks inside and he finds something terrifying. He's freaked out, but is afraid that if he calls the police, they will take his animal traps away. So he doesn't report what he finds or tell anyone about it. A day later, a college student is walking through the same lot. He's sneaking around to spy on some girls walking home to their boarding school Oh, so,
0: no! not cool. Oh, no.
1: He notices something in the underbrush and he walks over to look and he sees that large cardboard box. He looks closer and is horrified by what he sees. He flees the scene and tries to put what he found in the back of his mind. He doesn't want to report it, but he's haunted by what he found. And so he confides in his priest the next day. And mm-hmm. finally, the priest immediately tells him to call the police. When the police are finally called, it's now February 26, 1957, Officer Elmer Palmer is the first on the scene. It's a cold and rainy day, and he remembers shivering in his raincoat, walking around the empty lot when he finds the box. He says later, it looked like a doll, and then I saw it wasn't a doll. Inside the box is the body of a dead little boy. This is the moment that the investigation into the horrible death of the boy in the box, which will last decades, begins. Medical examiners estimate that the boy in the box is between four and six years old. He's found naked, wrapped in a flannel blanket in this large box that was meant for a bassinet originally. His fingernails are trimmed and he has a crude, haphazard haircut that seems to have been recent. Little cut hairs are found all over his body and his hair is really choppy. His right hand and right foot are pruney, like they may have been soaked in water. And a custom-made hat is found near the crime scene, and the bassinet box has a serial number on it. So police are sure they'll have this case solved really quickly. Medical examiners conclude that the boy in the box had been beaten to death. Mm. It's clear that he was abused and neglected for quite some time before he died. He is only 30 pounds and was 40 and a half inches tall. And that's just a little under three and a half feet. And the average and healthy five-year-old should weigh 30 to 45 pounds and be 40 to 45 inches tall. So he's really on the light, small side. Mm. He seems chronically malnourished and covered in weird scars that look like surgical incisions. He still had all his baby teeth, so no dental records exist for him when they check. Almost immediately, the investigation hits a lot of snags because both the teenager and the college student stalled before reporting the body. Detectives have lost valuable time. Plus, it's February in Philadelphia, which means it's cold out, the temperatures are really low, which slows down the body's decomposition rate. So it's impossible to determine the time of death or how long he's been in the box. Detectives have three main clues from the crime scene. That cardboard box the hat they found nearby, and the blanket that the boy is wrapped in. The blanket is a dead end. It was mass-produced and sold widely, which makes it nearly impossible to trace. But the box is from a local J.C. Penney department store. They're able to figure out that this particular bassinet box is one of only 12 that were sold between December 3rd, 1956 and February 16th, 1957, which is just days before the boy in the box was discovered. So they're able to track down 11 of those 12 bassinet buyers, all but one. This is impressive Mm. police work, obviously, because the store also is cash only. So despite that, they're able to track down 11 of the buyers. Wow. Yeah. They're able to find out a bit more about the hat. Police tracked down the store where it was purchased, and the owner even remembers who bought it, but the owner's description is really broad and unspecific. She describes a white man in his early 20s and he is never found and never comes forward. Hmm. So police are becoming desperate for leads. Detectives check hospitals, orphanages, and foster homes, both in and out of Philly. They make flyers with graphic photos of the boy in the box and distribute them widely. These posters are disturbing. I'm sure we've all seen them and feature images of his dead body and a plea for any information anyone might have. At one point, police even dress up the boy in the box in nice clothes and position him in a more lifelike way for photographs so that he might be more identifiable, which is, it's so disturbing.
0: But it's also kind of, they're trying their best or yeah. they're trying to figure out what is going to actually get results. Yes. But horrifying I mean, to distribute that. It's
1: disturbing that. for back then, you know, and and they're still, they just hope that that's going to find out who this poor boy is. Right. Um. Even though they've been following up on every lead and throwing all of their resources at this investigation, the boy in the box case is not solved quickly like they'd hope. Leads run out. Um, He's buried in a potter's field, which is a grave site for unidentified people. He's buried with a donated plaque that reads, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. And he becomes known as America's unknown child. So here are some theories. At the beginning of the case, there's tons of theories flying around. Um, people speculate that the unnamed boy is a Hungarian refugee who fled to the United States after the country's revolution in 1956. They think he might be the son of a local Philadelphia roofer that people are suspicious of. It's even proposed that he is the child of some carnival workers who had many of their children die mysteriously.
0: Oh, no. Oh, like an old case yeah, kind of Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow.
1: Police investigate all these leads thoroughly, and they go nowhere. Several professionals involved in this case really took the boy in the box to heart. Many even followed leads way after they'd retired up until they died. Mm. Remington Bristow, one of the medical examiners who worked on this case, was extraordinarily dedicated to the boy in the box. He visited his gravesite regularly with little gifts and flowers. He made sure that on the anniversaries of the boy's murder that the case was in the news and Bristow even carried around a death mask of the boy's
0: face in his briefcase. Oh. That's actually very smart. Like if he was looking into something mm-hmm. and talked to somebody, he could immediately say, Does this face look familiar right. to you? Right. Totally. I mean, like that's that is dedicated. Yeah.
1: He spent thousands of dollars of his own money to investigate. And even though there weren't many breakthroughs during his lifetime, Bristow always believed that future technology would help solve this case and had creative approaches to investigating. He spoke with the media a lot and said he, quote, didn't think this was a homicide. It could have been accidental. However, people close to him say that he didn't actually believe that. He was just trying to coax the parents to come forward. Mm. Bristow died in 1993 without having seen this case solved. And he's actually credited in a lot of articles that we read about keeping this case in the news. So let's get more into some theories. The first one I want to talk about is a theory proposed by Bristow. In 1960, he's contacted by a psychic from New Jersey and together they meet in the empty lot where the boy was discovered. The psychic leads Bristow directly to a foster home about two miles away. This foster home is run by a family, and Bristow believes that the boy in the box might have been the illegitimate son of the daughter of the foster home's owner. Unfortunately, despite thorough investigation, this theory falls apart. And later, in 1998, a DNA test clears this family. Another theory comes from a Philadelphia woman who calls herself M. In 2002, she comes forward with memories that her parents had bought a little boy in the mid-1950s. She says her mother was extremely physically abusive, allegedly keeping this little boy hidden in the basement and torturing him
0: for years. Nightmare.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Em remembers that one night the boy threw up during a bath after eating baked beans and Em's mother beat him to death in a fit of rage. She has this memory. How awful is that? Em remembers her mom making her help dump the body in an empty lot where they found an empty box to hide him in. So she has all these memories of that. She says that a passing man stopped them and offered to help as they were struggling to move the box, but they ignored him and drove away. Oh, wow. So that's her memory of what happened. Some investigators believe that Em's story is the key to the case. The boy in the box did have some kind of brown substance in his stomach when he died, which something could have been the baked beans. And additionally, a motorist did report seeing two people, one young and one old, getting something out of a car near where the body was discovered. So M first reported these memories to her psychiatrist who supported her in coming forward to the police. But for some, this throws doubt on her testimony because they claim her, quote, history of mental health issues makes her unreliable. Uh, I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how much
0: more do you have to have your story line up?
1: Right, right. Um, For what it's worth, neighbors who live near M's childhood home dismiss her story. They say that the story is ridiculous and that there couldn't have been a little boy living in the basement, which leads us to another theory.
0: Wait, sorry, the neighbors say that because, like, they never saw a little boy? Apparently, yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Yeah.
1: So forensic artist Frank Bender proposes that the boy in the box might have been raised as a girl. The only evidence to really support this fact is that the boy appears to have gotten such an abrupt haircut before his body was left in the box. But so far, there's been no leads about this story, this theory or M's story. In 2008, Bender draws up sketches of the boy in the box with longer hair and styled as a girl's in hopes that someone might recognize the child. But so far, there's been no leads that have come forward about this theory and M's story remains unverified. So this guy, Bender, the one who proposed this raised as a girl theory, is a member of a special group called the Vidoc Society, which you might have heard of. It's Mm -hmm. a members-only crime-solving club that describes itself as, quote, a venue where like-minded persons, both in and outside the field of forensics, could gather to discuss and debate crimes and mysteries. It's also a big part of the -the boy-in-the-box story because pretty much every theory that's been mentioned so far has been explored by this Philadelphia-based group. Um, Also, many of the original investigators of this case joined the Vidoc Society after they retired so they could keep working on the case.
0: Oh, wow. It's like part of the founding, um, like the reason the group was founded. It seems like it. Yeah, totally.
1: The Philadelphia Police Department and the Vidoc Society work closely together on this case. Moving forward. So in 1998, police exhume the boy in the box's body to collect new DNA samples... And then he's reburied at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia, so he's no longer in a pauper's field. The cemetery donates a new plot, and ever since then, cemetery employees and community members have taken care of the gravesite. So fast forward, in 2019, the boy in the box is exhumed again, and more DNA is collected. The plan for this DNA is to apply more modern testing, most importantly, genealogical testing, like what helped catch the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. A team of investigators, including medical examiners and forensic genealogists, get to work. They generate a usable DNA profile for the unknown boy and upload it to a database to find relatives. So finally, just last month, on December 8th, 2022, the Philadelphia Police Department announces that they have finally figured out the name of America's unknown child. Wow. Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Members of the Vidoc Society are thanked at the press conference. It turns out they were able to make contact not only with one, but several living siblings and relatives on both maternal and paternal sides. Whoa. Yeah. Joseph's birth parents have passed away and their names were not announced in order to protect the privacy of living family members. We now know that Joseph's birthday was January 13th, 1953, and he was just four years old when he died. Mm. So this is still an open and active case, obviously. That's all the information they've released so far. And police are asking for the public's help. They have their suspicions about who was responsible for the death, but investigations are ongoing. During the recent press conference, the Philadelphia Police Department talked about how they would be applying this genealogical forensic technique to other cold cases— Obviously, this is important because there's so many unidentified victims out there who deserve to have their names back. And one of those is another Philadelphia-based cold case called The Girl in the Box. When The Girl in the Box is discovered in 1962, so many of her circumstances are almost the same as The Boy in the Box. She's between four and six years old. She's been horribly abused. And she's seemingly impossible to identify. But this case gets treated Completely differently, she's a young Black girl and seemingly has no advocate to keep her memory alive. Mm. She was buried in the same cemetery for unidentified people as the boy in the box, but her grave was basically forgotten. And in 2018, when forensic experts decided to exhume her body to gather DNA to apply these modern technologies, they couldn't find her. The plot where she was supposed to have been buried was empty. And the city records from this 1960s weren't well kept. And even though other nearby plots were searched, her body has yet to be found.
0: Oh, so she, they can't find where she really was buried. Yeah. Oh. So it's just these, you
1: know, one horrible story after another. Cold cases need more people to care about them in order to have any chance of being solved. The boy in the box had loads of people keeping his memory alive. And because of those efforts, 65 years later, the case of Joseph Augustus Zarelli actually has a real chance of being solved. And that is the story of the boy in the box.
0: Whoa. So we have yet to find out if M's story is related? Yeah, could be.
1: So we don't know, yeah, we don't know anything and who knows when and if we will.
0: But there might be like an old relative who can finally talk. Yeah, yeah. Or something that, you know, like somebody was keeping a family secret for whatever reason and can now actually tell it, especially if there was like horrible abuse. Totally, totally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible.
1: Yeah, wild story. One of those ones that I think true crime people have always just been like, just so curious about this. How can a child be found and not be identified? It just seems so impossible, you know, but it happens all the time, obviously.
0: It happens all the time. And it's the kind of thing where People bringing unwanted children into the world; those children suffer. Yeah, and that idea when you start talking about like, let's check foster homes. We should have a foster system set up where that would never even be considered totally. because their children are protected and loved. And which is not to say that many are not. Yes, but the ones that are not. Yeah. And then basically don't have advocates or if your if skin is the incorrect color. Yeah. And then that happens to you and no one's going to put in the time. Totally. It's egregious. And at least after 40 years, something is, or 50 years, I guess. Yeah. yeah. 70 years. 65 years. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, good. I mean, congratulations to those people who kept on investigating and yeah. stayed on it. Totally. You know there's some like online sleuth that has been like yeah dedicated for 30 years or something. Definitely. I would love I would love to know about that. Someone who's like, well, here's what I did.
1: (laughs) Right. And here's the email I sent. Exactly.
0: Yes. So I'm gonna do the thing that you know I like to do, which is change gears Mm -hmm. and go in a very different and bizarre direction. Okay. It's it's the craziest story, but it's really old. It's such a reflection of how old it is. This is the amazing life and the questionable death of Cuba's first Olympic athlete, Felix Carvajal. Oh. I actually started reading this to my dad as I was uh, going over it because it was so insane that I was like, dad, listen to this. So the sources for today, uh, a heavily cited article by a writer named Liam Boylan Pet for Lope magazine, L-O-P-E, entitled The Barely Believable Life of Felix Carvajal. There's also an uncredited Courier-Journal article from 1905 called Fleet of Foot and Tireless is Felix Carvajal the Cuban. Hmm. And then there's a 1906 article by Robert Edgren that ran in multiple newspapers called Cuba Well-Represented in Marathon Race at Athens, The Queer Story of Felix Carvajal. All right. So, the rest of the um, sources are in our show notes if you want to look at those and read those. So, we're starting in 1907. That's 125 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Backwards now. Nah. Exactly. Who can do it? So it's 1907, and a cruise ship docks in Havana, Cuba, where it has just arrived from Spain. The passengers file off board, and they move through customs, handing over their documents to the customs agents for inspection before... Entering the country, everything is business as usual mm-hmm. until one very disheveled man approaches the customs counter. The agent checking his paperwork is instantly suspicious, not only because the man looks very dirty, but he's also just landed from a long transatlantic trip, yet he is carrying no luggage. Mm-hmm. When the agent checks the man's papers, his suspicion turns to shock. The name on the paperwork is well known to him and to many Cubans, Felix Carvajal, Cuba's first Olympic athlete. Just three years before in the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, Felix made a huge name for himself in the marathon event. But this messy looking man couldn't possibly be Felix Carvajal because Felix Carvajal is dead. (gasps) So... Now we have to rewind about 30 years. I'll tell you about basically the beginning of the life of Félix de la Caridad Caraval Isoto. He's born in March of 1875 in Havana, Cuba. His family is very poor and he doesn't have much in the way of material possessions. But what he does have is a seemingly inexhaustible supply of energy. God, I'd love to have that. (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Felix is always on the move and he's a little cocky. So, so much so that when he's 14 years old, he has no athletic credentials to his name. He is not ranked, rated, anything. Mm -hmm. And he challenges a much older decorated Spanish athlete to an endurance race. So... At this point in history, Spain has controlled Cuba for hundreds of years. Tensions between the two countries are palpable. So this race actually becomes political. The two runners start at eight in the morning and they're still racing well into the evening. Hmm. When his Spanish competitor finally throws in the towel around 5 p.m., 14-year-old Felix keeps going for another two hours. Oh my God. So he wins and then he does a kind of in your face thing. By the time Felix finally stops at seven p m, he's been running for eleven hours straight. Mm. The website Cuba Paradisas says that, quote, "The joy of Felix's neighbors and friends was intense, and they carried him on their shoulders through the streets." Felix is so overcome with emotion that he bursts into tears. He's a hometown hero, basically. Mm-hmm. So by 1895, Felix is 20 years old. He's five foot three and he has this enormous mustache, like a glorious, gigantic, (laughs) a little bit twisty at the end mustache. Very nice. At this point, Cuba is in a full-fledged war against Spain for its independence. Mm -hmm. And Felix is serving as the personal mailman for Calixto Garcia, who was a top Cuban general. The job requires Felix to run up to 30 miles a day, delivering important military messages all across the island. Yeah, right? It's incredibly dangerous work. Also, to us, very tiring. (laughs) And before long, Felix winds up on the radar of the Spanish military. And at one point, he is almost killed by an enemy soldier. But when the war ends in 1898, despite his service, Felix is barely scraping by. He takes jobs as a civilian postman. He's a hotel doorman. He's a barber. He's a handyman. And then the little free time he does have, he spends it running. So he's never had the means to travel to a formal race like the Boston Marathon, but still Felix is confident that he's one of the best long-distance runners there is. Mm -hmm. So when he hears that the 1904 Olympic Games will be held in St. Louis, he becomes consumed with the idea of competing in the marathon of the Olympic Games and winning the gold for his country. Felix figures that if he can just get there... He'll bring glory to Cuba and get recognized finally as one of the world's best athletes. Gotta be that cocky. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? To just be like, it's me. I just need to sh- be able to show up. Yeah, somehow. I'm the best. So, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that way. No, absolutely not. It helps. Yeah. I think for sure that in a gigantic mustache <laughs> that truly looks like a small broom. Okay. <laughs> But in the early 1900s, getting to Missouri from Havana is tough enough. But for Felix, who's basically destitute, Mm -hmm. it's borderline impossible. So he decides to go ask the mayor for help. But once he gets there, he's stopped outside the mayor's office door by a secretary who is not buying his sales pitch. And it's hard to blame her. Felix is a complete unknown. He has no proof to back up his claims that he is this excellent athlete. So she asks him to leave, but Felix can't let it go. He pushes his way past her. He goes into the mayor's office where the elegantly dressed man is sitting in a big leather chair, puffing a cigarette and the mayor's clearly taken aback by this scraggly-looking intruder. And like his secretary, he thinks Felix is delusional. He's not buying it either. In fact, the mayor reportedly laughs in Felix's face before telling him to get out. But Felix is not discouraged. Mm -mm, Of course not. I mean, can you imagine just not giving a shit about rejection to this degree? (laughs) He takes matters into his own hands, exits the mayor's office, says goodbye to the secretary, steps out into the plaza and starts running. Felix completes one full lap around the building, then another. He just keeps going. One article says that each time he made another lap, quote, more people were watching for him and as he passed, they could not restrain a smile. Next time they roared with laughter, clerks and office boys swelled the crowd of spectators. So legend has it that at six o'clock that night, the mayor, who has been inside the whole time with his blinds drawn, Mm -hmm. packs up his stuff, heads home for the day. And when he steps outside, he's shocked to discover that an enormous crowd has gathered to watch Felix run in circles around the building. He's inspired to march back to his desk, cut a check, hand it over to Felix saying, quote, this is for your transportation to St. Louis. Now go and do your best. Nice. (laughs) Right? It's a great story. It's not entirely verifiable. People say it's more likely that Felix fundraised for the Olympics all on his own. There are stories that he ran around Havana with a sign strapped to his body that said, quote, help an athlete that wants to participate in the Olympics. But either way, the, the truth is he raised enough money to make it to the United States. Yeah. So he sets out for St. Louis beginning with a trip on a steamship to New Orleans. But then once he gets off that steamship and gets into New Orleans, he needs to find a way to get to Missouri, and he's already running low on money. He didn't raise enough money to cover food, hotels, or any athletic wear Mm. that he needs to raise. He just basically has ticket money and a tiny bit more. But he's not stressed about it, not Felix. Instead, He has too much fun hanging out in New Orleans bars and casinos, and he ends up losing every (sighs) excess penny he has playing dice. No, Yeah. So now he has absolutely no means to get to St. Louis, which is 700 miles away from New Orleans, but he's not discouraged. He can't pay for transportation, so he figures he'll just walk there. So he sets out, occasionally hitching a ride here and there, and he ends up making it to St. Louis just four hours before the Olympic marathon <laughs> begins. Love it. When he arrives at the starting line, he hasn't eaten anything for days. His body's exhausted. He's wearing the worst possible outfit for marathoning, which mm. is a billowy long sleeve shirt, long slacks, which are his only pair of pants, heavy homemade boots, which weigh around four pounds total. Oh my God. And to top it all off, a felt beret. Wow. And it's 90 degrees outside. <laughs> <laughs> no. So it's, it's not just improper clothing for running, but it is a terrible outfit just for walking around outside. Yeah. The website Cuba Paradistas says that the crowd of onlookers jeer at Felix. They quote, saw this scrawny five foot tall runner and doubted that he could even finish half the race. End quote. So at the starting line, an American named Martin Sheridan pulls out his pocket knife and cuts Felix's slacks into Bermuda-length shorts to basically to help Felix run better. And a 1907 article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch says that Felix, quote, carefully hid the pieces so that he could sew them on again after the race because they were the (laughs) only trousers he had. So he took the bottoms of his pants and like put them in his pockets (laughs) so he could keep them. Now, there's a really great picture of all of the marathoners like before the race. And they all are basically wearing like white tank tops with numbers on them and white shorts. Mm -hmm. And some of them are wearing belts. Like they almost look like weightlifters belts. Hmm. And then Felix is standing over there in like a dress shirt And then these kind of Bermuda shorts (laughs) and then big old boots. So the men's marathon is billed as the top athletic event at the 1904 Olympics. So there's thousands of spectators, and they're gathered in a brand new stadium to watch the 32 runners take off. So at 3.03 p.m., the starting pistol fires. The runners start by running five laps inside the stadium, and then they move outside where they are hit with a wall of heat Mm -mm. because it's 90 degrees outside. Mm -mm. So it's so insane. This marathon course is strenuous, it's hilly, and it is arguably unsafe. A journalist named Karen Abbott writes that, quote, the men had to constantly dodge crosstown traffic, <laughs> delivery wagons, <laughs> railroad trains, hmm. trolley cars, and people walking their dogs. Perfect. So it's not in any way fenced off. They just have to run through St. Louis. Wow. Kind of great. It's later described by one marathoner as quote, the most difficult course a human being was ever asked to run over. So on top of that, most of the outdoor track is dirt road. It's the late summertime in the American Midwest. So there on certain parts of the course, there are inches of thick dust. And as the as the runners move through, they kick it up into their own mouths and faces. Uh. All the passing vehicles, carriages, and pedestrians add to a literal dust cloud that follows the runners as they go. Oh my God. And before long, multiple athletes drop out because they can't see, breathe, or they're vomiting dirt. Cool. So that's bad for running, apparently. How would we know? <laughs> so now, there, but there's Felix. Weirdly, he seems to be handling it all like a pro, For the first few miles, he's leading the group, which is a miracle considering how hungry, tired, and thirsty he must be. But what's interesting is all the runners are thirsty because, of course, today it's a no-brainer that hydration is essential for athletes, especially on a hot summer day. But back in 1904, it was up for debate. Mm -hmm. So the organizers in St. Louis are using this race as a research opportunity to test whether, quote, purposeful dehydration improves athleticism. Oh, no. If we're going to do the Olympics, we might as well do some scientific testing at the same time. Guinea pigs. Yeah. So accordingly, organizers have only set out two water stations along the marathon route. One is at mile six, the other at mile 12. Wow. So... Everyone's thirsty and dusty. It's all a recipe for disaster. Before long, the race devolves into absolute mayhem. A South African runner named Len Tanyani, who makes history as one of the first Black Olympians, has an incredible start, but he's later sabotaged by, you guessed it, a feral dog that chases him a mile off course. Oh, no. Just rando danger all through. Then an American runner named William Garcia, collapses on the side of the road and has to be hospitalized because dust has, quote, coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. Oh my God. And they later say that had he gone unaided an hour longer, he might have bled to death. Jesus. It's kind of like a a post-apocalyptic marathon in a lot of ways. (laughs) There's a lot of extra shit happening. In fact, stomach issues soon start wreaking havoc on a lot of the marathoners a front runner named Sam Meller taps out around mile 13 because of debilitating cramps. And then a runner named Fred Lors drops out in style and hitches a ride back to the stadium in a car. Yeah. So now our boy Felix, who's clip clopping along in his big boots, is falling behind, but not because of exhaustion or improper running gear or dehydration. He's trailing because he's such a ham that he can't keep himself from stopping to greet spectators along the route. Oh my God. He keeps having conversations with people in broken English. At one point, he even steals a couple peaches from someone on the sidelines. He loves having an audience, but of course it comes at a cost. Later, race officials will determine that Felix loses an entire hour to these trackside chats. Wow! (laughs) So nevertheless, he persists, but with each mile, Felix's hunger intensifies. Eventually, he can't ignore it anymore. Luckily, the course runs alongside an apple orchard. So Felix decides to take yet another break from the race. He hops a fence and goes into the orchard and helps himself to a generous number of apples. But in yet another unfortunate turn of events, those apples turn out to be rotten. No. So within minutes felix has shooting stomach cramps and is in so much pain he has to lay down and rest oh my god
1: if you're like me you're always looking for a story to dive into whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve the key to getting hooked is the details i need rich visuals and intricate storylines and june's journey has that and more Okay, we're back. This is this is so weird for everyone at home. We had just had a 24-hour pause in this podcast. <laughs> because yes, mid story. Mid story. Yesterday, as Karen was telling her story, I was trying so hard to keep it together. But I, as we started recording, had the was getting a migraine that kept coming on and on. And then throughout Karen's story which was like people th- throwing up and people getting sick. And I I had to stop and be like, I can't do this today. And I went and threw up. I get a migraine like once every few months and I have to throw up and lay down, so. They're
0: the worst. It's the worst. Truly the worst. Thank you for letting me pause, but. We're back. Yeah, so of course. Oh, wait. We, we jumped ahead 24 hours. We're different people. This <laughs> isn't for you. It seems the same, yeah. it's so different. And th- I have different pajamas on, Ethan. I yeah, I have the same clothes on. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's get back into it. I feel 100% better. Okay, good. We're getting right back in. All right. We're, mid, we're <laughs> mid-marathon. Wouldn't it be interesting? I was about to say, for those of you who just joined us, what if someone started the podcast here? That would be really fascinating. <laughs> that would be weird. They accidentally skipped forward. Okay. So, now up ahead on the marathon route, away mm-hmm. w- ahead of Felix, is a man named Thomas Hicks, who in fact is a professional clown. I love it. He loves to bring joy to the people, and also he loves to run, run, run away. <laughs> So he's managed to reach the first place spot in this race, but things are not going well for him either. Back at mile 10, he'd exhausted himself sprinting to the front of the pack. Mm -hmm. So now he's depleted. He wants to give up. Oh, this is the part that broke you. Yeah. (laughs) Because, (laughs) but his trainers aren't ready to let that happen. So- Thomas Hicks' trainers run onto the course and give him one of the first known performance-enhancing substances yes. ever used at the
1: Olympics. Oh, s- ever this. I was so sick <laughs> yesterday. I, I was, well, while we were recording, I kept getting lower and lower on the couch and mm-hmm. like almost laying down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, the, and then I hit her with this factoid, uh-huh. which is mid-marathon, a guy's trainers run on and give him a combination of strychnine, yeah. And egg whites. That's right. I And then I was the, like, we need to yeah, stop. <laughs> Georgia, that's when Georgia called it and said, this marathon podcast recording session is over. I mean,
1: that's how good your story was, you know?
0: Hey, we're making it real. Yeah, Please let us know if we <laughs> instigated any other migraines right. or really anything. It's pretty challenging, this story. Yeah. So the trainers come on and give him a, basically a, a very strange, like a keto... Egg white strychnine (laughs) omelet.
1: Don't try this at home, anyone. Yeah.
0: Apparently back then, well, in small amounts, Mm -hmm. strychnine, which is also found in rat poison, used to be sometimes used as a stimulant.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: The idea that anybody survived back then (laughs) is incredible. And they also, these trainers also have brandy on hand because... Quote, runners at the time apparently believed against all evidence that alcohol would give them a boost and champagne was often drunk during races instead of water. No, just no. Yes. I mean, this is an argument to become interested in history. Yeah. Any students out there? It was so weird back then. Yes. You need to find out what they were doing.
1: Truly. Against all evidence. It sounds like a lot of people today, actually.
0: Yeah, that's They're true. Still- where it's like... <laughs> I don't know. I, think I don't know I need about a shot science. of brandy. Fuck science. <laughs> I'm going to do this on my own. I have depression. I probably should drink champagne through it. Yeah. That's what's going to do it. Hey, it's me. So, so meanwhile, Fred Lors, you might remember him, he was the runner who forfeited because he was having stomach cramps. Mm-hmm. He got into a car mm-hmm. and he was heading back to the stadium, which is where the finish line was. So, along the way of him riding back to the stadium in a car, He's smiling and waving to spectators. You know, he's remembering the glory of the race. Mm -hmm. And then he decides to do something that ended up being very controversial. As a crowd of spectators and race officials watch, he hops out of the car, gets back on the marathon route, and starts running the race again in front of everybody. (laughs) (laughs) He actually ends up running all the way back into the stadium. He goes inside, he crosses the finish line, and... Inside, of course, the people inside the stadium are none the wiser. uh So thousands of people in the stadium erupt in cheers thinking they're watching the man win the gold for the marathon. Yeah. Bro, bro. All the way to the point where Alice Roosevelt, who was President Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Mm -hmm. she's there to give out medals. And she puts a wreath on Fred's head and she is about to put the gold medal around his neck. Mm -hmm. But before she does, a mob bursts through the stadium doors and exposes Fred as a fraud. He would later go on to apologize and claim it was just a joke that he took too far, which I... Really relate to and yeah. understand where it's like, wouldn't it be funny if <laughs> yeah. and then you don't, you
1: don't think I'll about tell them, them about after. That. I'm not gonna keep it. It's of just course. yeah,
0: I'll let Alice Roosevelt know this isn't sure. real. Well, let's go back to the orchard where Felix is literally laying on the ground napping. Right. The apples. Another thing that probably made you <laughs> <Yes>. feel awful. <laughs> This is real I don't know time it was of like, the
1: power of storytelling. I was like, this is me. They're going to make me do this next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, like I can't run a marathon. Get up and run. Yeah. So back in the orchard, Felix is recovering from his rotten apple poisoning. Uh-huh. He manages to get himself back over the fence. He gets himself back onto the course. He starts running again. He feels like shit. He has knots in his stomach. He's having hot and cold flashes. Oh my God, I'm glad we didn't get to this. Oh, seriously. (laughs) He's having hot and cold flashes. He's actually in so much pain that his vision is spotty. (laughs) This is too ironic. It's so dead on. Yeah. He's also so far behind at this point that the race officials have assumed he's just dropped out because mm-hmm. he's that far behind. They aren't even charting his progress anymore. Mm-hmm. But then he gets a second wind, which if you remember back when he was 14 challenging that Spanish athlete, right? he ran for 11 hours. This man, he's got it in him. Yeah. So within minutes... Felix has run through the pain. He's caught up to another marathoner and then another. Now race officials start tracking his progress again. They're like, hold on a second. Felix is back. And then they watch in total shock as he moves into 18th place, picking up speed, passing a few more runners, moves into 11th place, then 7th, then 6th. Damn. Right? Now, meanwhile, Hicks, the professional clown runner who Uh had the omelet... (laughs) Strychnine Omelette. <laughs> Strychnine Omelette. He's still holding down first place, but he is not doing well. He is now hallucinating. He can barely walk. Great. Which you would, you know, it's it's not has nothing to do with his athleticism his trainers right. have literally poisoned yeah, him yeah. old school style even though he's not running he's doing what was described as more of a shuffle he finally enters the stadium now a writer named mike vago says that hicks quote had to be bodily carried over the finish line as his trainers lifted him off the ground while he continued to shuffle his feet oh, like in a, a dog motion. going into water oh yeah. my god that's so humiliating by the end of this race, Hicks had lost eight pounds of water weight. Oh, my God. They say that he would have died had there not been four doctors on site to immediately treat him once he crossed the finish line. Yeah. So now with the, the first runner having won legitimately, the mm-hmm. first real, real runner who really earned it, I think, mm-hmm. Felix charges ahead. He's now moving toward the front of the pack in this unbelievable upset from last place. The 1905 edition of the Courier-Journal newspaper describes Felix running style as, quote, crossing one foot over the other like a skater would in making a turn. <laughs> that's, that's how he ran forward, which mm. is kind of amazing. Maybe it was because of those gigantic boots. Sure. So finally, covered in dust and sweat, Felix enters the stadium. He sprints his last lap and he throws himself over the finish line. As he catches his breath, a race official comes to congratulate him. And this is where Felix learns his final position in the race. After everything, walking from New Orleans, running entirely, if not prohibitively overdressed, wearing homemade boots on his feet, stopping to chat, (laughs) getting sick from apples, and then taking a nap, all of it. Uh Georgia getting a migraine, all of it.
1: (laughs) Everything he's been through.
0: (laughs) He manages to finish fourth place in the 1904 Olympic marathon. Holy shit. Felix, as you might guess, he starts sobbing right there in the finish line because he's so heartbroken that he didn't win.
1: (laughs) Buddy, there's always next time. Right? There really
0: is with this guy. Yeah. So even though he didn't win, of course, he gets a ton of attention after this race. Reporters go on the record saying that despite his fourth place finish, Felix was arguably the strongest runner Mm. and only lost because he was totally unprepared and distracted during the event. Yeah, a little bit. And this also, they don't even, because it was the turn of the century, they don't even talk about the socioeconomic factors mm-hmm. that held him back, like a lack of transportation, money, proper athletic gear, any of that stuff. Somewhere
1: to sleep the night before, like properly yes. sleep.
0: He walked there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he kind of did win in a lot of ways. Yeah. But... Even as his profile rises, he's still broke. He can't afford to pay for his trip home after this event. So Felix sticks around in the United States, hoping to make some money. He joins a local running club and he continues training. A 1905 St. Louis Democrat article describes his training regimen, saying, quote, almost any day, a person may go into the gym and see Felix plugging around the track. Two hours later, a return visit will still show Felix going around and around, sometimes sprinting and other times barely moving at a dog trot, but never walking. Wow. He's keeping it up. Yeah. It's Felix, so he also manages to get into a little bit of trouble during his stint in the United States he goes to visit friends in New York. And during that time, he quote, jogged beside cable cars until police arrested him <laughs> and sent him to Bellevue Hospital as an insanity suspect. Huh. So, but that was just his style. Yeah. Like it was like he, and I'm sure he was probably talking to people on those cable cars, yeah. is my guess. So he Felix spends three days. Um, at Bellevue before his friends finally figure out where he is and they go pick him up. And when they do, the police ask them, how long has he been crazy? And to which his friends reply, quote, he isn't crazy, he's a runner. (laughs) So when Felix goes back to Cuba, he brings back with him all these medals and prizes from races in Chicago, Washington, and beyond. He's even profiled by a Cuban magazine basically he is you know he is now a lauded celebrated long distance runner mm-hmm. and now he's got his eyes on the 1906 Athens marathon so he's like i'm going to do it again this is going to be my yeah life calling So after all that training and experience, Felix is certain he can win that race and the rest of the world thinks so too. But even with all the acclaim he's earned as a premier Olympic athlete, Felix is still clocking into his postman job every day and trying to earn a living. But unlike before, no one questions his athletic abilities. So for his trip to the 1906 Athens Marathon, Felix raises enough money to fully fund his trip to Europe Mm -hmm. as well as pay for a trainer, meals, and... Proper running gear. You know, what other people call the basics. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Standard shit. Yeah. So when it's time for him to leave for Greece, Felix boards a ship that'll take him from Cuba to Italy, which is the first stop on his long trip to Athens. And now there's no doubt in his mind that this marathon is the one that'll catapult him to a whole new level of sports stardom and change his life for the good. Mm -hmm. But once he gets off the ship in Italy, Felix vanishes. Hmm. After devoting everything he has into this event, the day of the race comes and goes, and he is a no-show. What? Yeah. So days turn to weeks, weeks turn to months, and still no one has heard from Felix. One newspaper in nineteen oh seven says, quote, the end of Felix Carvajal became an unexplained mystery. He had disappeared like a ship lost in a storm at sea, leaving no trace. At last, it was generally believed that he had lingered in Italy and had, like a fool, shown his Cuban gold in some Neapolitan dive Mm -hmm. and drifted out on the tide that night with his throat cut. Subtle. (laughs) Quite an assumption. (laughs) Felix's obituary runs in Cuban newspapers and his fans and fellow countrymen mourn the loss of Cuba's first Olympian. So now we're back where we started at the very beginning at the customs counter in Havana, Mm -hmm. the agent looking at the man who's just handed over a dead man's travel documents. And because it's the early 1900s, when everything was way more chill, the agent lets him pass without any further questions. <laughs> He's like, I thought you are dead.
1: Go on in.
0: Thought you were dead. Maybe you're just using this guy's papers. Whatever it is, welcome to Cuba. <laughs> and then whatever doubts the agent has are quickly erased because as he watches, this disheveled man goes from a walk to a full sprint. Oh and now there's no mistaking it. It actually indeed is the Felix Carvajal. Oh, wow. So, it turned out the reason Felix disappeared, it's not creepy. It's not mysterious. His throat was not even attempted to be slit. Mm-hmm. He got the date of the race wrong. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> it's my life story. Bro. <laughs> Just like some basic. You had one job. <laughs> you have one job. You cared so much yeah. about this race that you focused on the wrong detail. <sighs> So by the time Felix gets to Athens, the marathon had already happened. Oh, buddy. (laughs) So instead of jumping on the next ship home, he decides to make the best of it. And he ran races in France, Spain, and Italy. Okay. Before he finally earned enough prize money to make the trip home. So... Now word quickly spreads that Cuba's first Olympian is alive and well, and newspapers <laughs> start correcting their early reporting <laughs> with publications as far away as North America running headlines like Cuban marathoner runner Carvajal comes to life. Mm. So Felix is back in Cuba. He keeps on training in 1908. He's in his mid-30s. He goes professional. The next year, he's billed as the man to watch in a marathon in New York State. 20 years later, when he's 53, he runs over (gasps) 4,000 laps in six days around a Havana mall. Holy shit. And 20 years after that, in January of 1949, when he is 73 years old, a young athlete from Argentina challenges Felix to an endurance race. Oh my God. Just like when he was a kid. And of course, he manages to pull a crowd because it's Felix and they love him. But he ends up losing the race because he's 73 <laughs> yeah. fucking years okay, old. Okay, good. Yes. I would love it if he still had yes. his boots on. <laughs> After the race, he sticks around, chats with fans. That's what he's really in it for, yeah. obviously. And this will be his last race because just a few days later, Felix Carvajal dies at the age of 73. Mm. Again, the local papers run his obituary, but sadly, this time there are no corrections. So, over the course of his life, Felix Carvajal won 55 trophies for marathons and races around the world. Mm. He's remembered at, in Cuba as. Andarin, or The Walker, and his story has endured for over a century. Countless magazine features, books, um, newspaper articles have been written about him. He was even the subject of a 30-minute Cuban TV special. And he's remembered not only as an incredible athlete who was born with unique greatness, but as someone who lived life to the very fullest. Writer Liam Boylan Pet summarizes Felix's legacy beautifully, saying, quote, "'Living in a shack in a poor neighborhood "'is not the life expected for an Olympian, "'the country's first Olympian. "'Nothing is said about his family or his personal life. "'The profiles and newspaper clippings hinted at it, "'but it seems that Carvajal "'was never able to escape poverty. "'He was born with almost nothing, "'showed up to his races with almost nothing, "'and died with almost nothing. "'The few times he had enough money to travel, "'he took advantage of it, "'he saw the world, "'and he always did it running.'" By all accounts, even when he was down, he ran his ass off. (laughs) And that is the legend of Cuba's first Olympian, Felix de la Caridad Carvajal. Wow. Wow. Right? Yeah. Legendary. For sure. A 2023 inspirational kickoff? Yeah.
1: No matter what? Do it. Let's be like this guy? It's almost like he invented just do
0: it. The phrase, just do it. But it, It's almost like Nike owes him a couple hundred <laughs> billion dollars. That's right. <laughs> Very cool. That was great. I'm glad I stuck around for it. Me, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you came back. I really appreciate it. I think Marin McClashen, our researcher, is the one who suggested that story. And she was like, I know it's crazy because there's not, it, you know, it's certainly not mm-hmm. really true crime except for his disappearance. Yes. <laughs> but the story itself is so... Truly nuts, so that it's going to be fun to talk about. Good one.
1: I love it. All right. Well, great job. That was maybe the longest podcast we've ever
0: done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 24 hours. I think. Yeah, at least 24. Yeah. We did it. We did. Great job. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That's right. For being with us. I think we're coming up on our seven year anniversary, by the by. We fucking are. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Me, you, Steven, we've been doing this <laughs> fucking thing for seven years. That so. is crazy. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, We're going to have to have a celebration, but thank you guys for, especially our day one listeners, mm-hmm. our early days listeners, everybody that is, I mean, this, you know, we say it all the time. It's a crazy thing to be able to do this for a living. To totally. <laughs> I just told you that story. You got to have a migraine in the middle. Yeah. We didn't have a boss that came in and told us we were both fired. That's fucking right. I love it. pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate you. And thanks, Stephen, for being here with us this whole time. Yeah. And stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production.
1: Our senior producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Stephen Ray Morris.
0: Our researchers are Marin McClashin and Sarah Blair Jenkins.
1: Email your hometowns and
0: fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. Goodbye. Goodbye.